listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and on today's show, I'm so excited to have this man. He is a singer-slash-songwriter. He is a pianist-slash-keyboard player. His slash is all over the place, in a good way. He is a member of Kansas. You heard me right. The rock group, the classic rock group, Kansas. And also, yes, he's played with The Sea Within. He's played with Meatloaf, lots of people. He also has a band called Spiraling. That's his own original project. We're going to talk about it all. His name is Tom Brislin. Tom, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. We've never met before, but we know at least one person in common, my friend Dan D'Elia. I, I believe you've worked with Dan once or twice or something like that, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, we, we've played together before. It's been, a, it's been a few years, but yeah. You know, you've got quite a prowess on your instrument. Where did you learn to play piano? Did you take lessons as a kid? How, how did you learn? I did take lessons first from my older sisters, actually. They were learning piano themselves, and they were the first ones to show me around. And I was also kind of figuring things out on my own a little bit at the same time, like starting to learn things by ear. And it was clear that I was always really into it. I always really loved it. When I, I think it was maybe around six or sevens when I started taking lessons with my sisters. And then about a year later, I, I started going to take lessons with a woman in town named Anita DeSorbo, at her music studio, and I studied with her all the way through high school, and then I went on to college uh, in New Jersey, also William Patterson University, and uh, I continued my music studies there. I detect a classical influence. Are you classically trained? I am to degree. Now, I'm not one of I wasn't one of those kids that was like genetically engineered for, for a classical piano and like <laughs> put in front of Bach at age three or right. something like that. I was a bit more rock and roll, but around the time I, I think when I was about maybe twelve years old and already playing, you know, various songs on piano for a few years. I got into the classics and even started doing the competitions and the recitals and things like that. And it was enough to get me moving and get me some good um, feedback from different uh, teachers all over the state. And uh, I actually did pretty well because I always had a lot of passion in my playing, even if I was a bit rambunctious. I wasn't the tidiest <laughs> player, but um, I was able to continue that into college. But the cool thing about the program I was in was that it was a world-class jazz studies department in this college. And I was also, around the same time I was getting into classical music, I was also really getting into jazz. And so those were like the two great oceans of music that I was studying and continued to do that in college, both that uh, classical and jazz. At the same time, though, it was like after school, I was rocking out <laughs> with my friends. And so it was always that kind of triangle, classical over here, jazz over there, and then the rock thing. You have a song with Kansas called The River Sang, and you do kind of a, a bit of an intro to that song. I could definitely hear a classical influence in that opening piece and many other pieces that you do. I, I could tell there's, there's some classical training in there. Absolutely. I think it, especially in the song The River Sang, I, I think that I drew from some of the classical pieces and composers that, that I was studying even, you know, when I was like 17. Hurry Up and Smell the Roses. That's uh, kind of an intriguing title. What does that represent? Why Hurry Up and Smell the Roses? The Hurry Up and Smell the Roses album is a solo album. I moved down to Nashville in 2010 and set up the home studio and was writing a lot more introspective music because it wasn't a rock band and we weren't, we didn't have that pressure to like, because, you know, Spiraling was an opening act for many bands, like They Might Be Giants and Violent Femmes, OK Go. And as an opening act, you 
we got into this thing where it was like we had to grab the attention of a sometimes hostile crowd <laughs> immediately. And so we were really going for the energy with spiraling. Once we called it a day, I kind of stepped back and said, hey, there's more I want to do musically. And I want to explore the ballads and songs that have patience. Because as an opening act, you're dealing with a potential audience that doesn't have patience. They're like, entertain us now or go away because we want to see the headline. Right. Right. And But for this, I was like, I'm going to take my time and let the music unfold as it would like to. If the song needs to be three minutes long, then it's three minutes long. If it needs to be seven minutes long, then it's seven minutes long. I just wanted to try to see what the, the honest and true musical expression w would be for a particular song. And one thing that I was dealing with and wanted to explore as sort of an overarching theme of the album was this sort of conflicting advice we get in life where it's like, you know, you want to get the most out of life. You've got to hustle. You've got to go for it. You've got to savor every moment. And don't waste a minute mm. and go for it. And then there's this other side of advice that says, stop and smell the roses. Soak in the life. You know, take your time and, and just make it. But they all kind of come back to the similar notion of make the most of every moment. And so I thought um, it would be kind of funny to sort of twist that phrase of stop and smell the roses, to hurry up and smell the roses. It's like this conflict right in the thing. Right, it's very ironic. War. Yeah, it's, it's all about that tug of war of trying to find what is the way, what is the path to the most fulfilling life? Is it letting the action come to you or going out and grabbing it? You know, that's something that I don't profess to have figured out. <laughs> but I, I wanted to kind of explore that, especially in the title track and with a few other songs on the album as well. So back to your band Spiraling for a second. It used to be called You Were Spiraling, right? And then you changed it to Spiraling. Yes. I started You Were Spiraling when I was in college. And the, the name was from this movie called The Commitments. Yeah, Early great movie. movie about but, Oh, yeah, a bunch of kid, uh, kids from Ireland forming a soul band. I love it. And, yeah, and the saxophone player is being a hot shot, and he's playing all his jazz licks on the show. And yep. the, Trump, the seasoned trumpet player scolds him afterwards and says, <laughs> soul has corners, but you were spiraling. And oh. that's jazz, and it doesn't belong here. Oh. And so what was happening was I was forming this rock band with jazz musicians, that my, my fellow jazz students in college who happened to like a lot of different kinds of stuff. Because one of my biggest influences in keyboards and in music is Herbie Hancock. He always said in interviews that he wanted to be a versatile musician. And you can tell in his output, he's played everything. And I wanted to, I want to be a versatile musician like Herbie. So I was always dipping my hands in all these different bags of music. And so we made a band where I could purposely break the rules and say, oh, I'm going to put the jazz in the rock, I'll put the rock in the jazz. Look, this has been done before, of course. But I wanted something that was a moving target and would just see if we got something interesting and happening in there. So originally the band had shades of prog rock, shades of jazz rock, like you think of Sting bands of the 80s were a big influence. And I was listening to Stevie Wonder, and I was listening to Magma and Emerson Lake and Palmer and you know, Ambrosia and all these different bands that were giving me different perspectives and flavors of music. Yeah, very diverse. And so that's what, you, yeah, so you were spiraling kind of start out in that regard. And we went through a big time acoustic phase because I think we were playing at a coffee house every week. So we started getting more gentle in our sound. <laughs> but we kind of 
galvanized into more of a synth rock band. And that's when we started doing these opening tours. But then right after that happened, I got called to tour with Yet. And this was my favorite band growing up. I had I couldn't resist. See, I had played with Meatloaf prior to that. But his tours were, you know, for a couple months here, and then I'd be home and do the spiraling thing, and then go back out with Meatloaf and do another. And, and your time with, yes. with Meatloaf was kind of the linchpin to, to getting that gig with Yes, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's how I got on their radar. The Yes experience was really great for me, but it, again, it was, you know, my poor band at home was sort of forced to pause and wait for me, and then some of them didn't. They moved on to other bands and were, were really going for it, and I didn't fault them for that. So when I came back from the Yes tour, I said, all right, I'm going to make this new spiraling album. Personnel changed a little bit. The music had, like I said, become more of a synth rock thing. So shorten the name, not to mention because every place we played, they, they would butcher the name on the marquee. <laughs> you are spiraling while you are spiraling. You know, yeah. I was like, well, let's make this wow. a little bit easier. I mean, where do you find the time to be a solo artist? Uh, that's a good question. At the time of Hurry Up and Smell the Roses, I was kind of free of other obligations. I, I did a couple tours with the band Renaissance. My role with that band was very clear in that I was actually recreating orchestral parts from their classic albums. And so the music was all there for me to just execute. The parts were all written, and I just had to play the parts. Um, and it was cool to tour with them, but it, uh, they weren't like loading up the calendar with a lot of dates. They were just playing sort of select tour dates. And I saw the opening to get my solo thing rolling. Not to mention, you know, just being on the road with them, I would come, be coming up with ideas, and it was just everything was pointing to, okay, go, go do this solo album. As for promoting it, you know, I did that record through Kickstarter, which at the time a lot of musicians were using to fund their album. It's since become obviously a platform for more like inventions and products and things like that. But it was a, a real viable, one of the first, you know, new ways of, of, a, of an artist or a band, like being able to do something of high quality without having to go to a record label. Right, me. right. So the good news is that it was very successful in that regard. But what happened was I was offering just a ton of incentives to the people who would pledge to help me make this album. And I think I over, you know, I, I overdid it. So I was saying, oh, if you pledge this certain amount, I'll, you could pick any song under the sun and I'll cover it for you. And the requests started pouring in. And I was like, oh, this is going to delay my process of making the album. I'm going to record 35 cover tunes. Right. So it's, a, again, a double-edged sword, but it was a really eye-opening experience. And at the end of the day, I was able to make the album I wanted to make the way I wanted to do it. Is it just as difficult to get something going with a major label as a solo artist when you know so many other people and you have such a high profile as a musician as it would be otherwise? I mean, why doesn't Inside Out sign you as a solo artist, for example? Well, they still might. It, that could happen. It just so happens that my first projects on that label, you know, I was I started off as a session player, you know, sideman on the Anderson Stolt album, Invention of Knowledge working with John Anderson and Rona Stoll from Flower Kings. And that was their project. And I came in and did some keys on that. And then a couple years later, The Sea Within was born. And again, Rona Stoll from Flower Kings was a big part of that, along with Jonas Reingold, bassist from Flower Kings, and Marco Miniman on drums. It was a type of thing where it could have gone the way of a recording project or it could have become a band, uh, like a full-time band. 
but everyone in the band has so many things cooking inside out it's pretty pretty clearly prog rock label so i think that once they started seeing me do more progressive rock stuff they started getting a little more familiar with me and they're the ones that referred me to kansas because kansas is on inside out and thomas faber the head of the label saw me at night at the prog with see within and said when when kansas had the need for a new keyboardist he said talk to tom so I got, that was a really cool vote of confidence. And of course, it, it helped put the C within like a little bit more into the category of a project because I was now going to become a full-time member of Kansas. You know, those, those guys were starting to do more albums with Flower Kings and Marco's always got something cooking. So that's why that, that sort of, we ended up only, I think, performing three times, once in Germany and twice on the cruise to the edge in 2019. And immediately after that, I was in the Kansas camp. You know, before we go any further, I'd love our listeners to hear what you sound like. Can we play something off of Hurry Up and Smell the Roses? By all means, please. I'd love to play Industry in the Distance. How about that? Oh, I would be delighted if you would. That one's a special one for me. All right. This is Tom Brislin. Listen up, everyone.
That's a great song. I, I love that song. Thank you. Is it daunting taking up the chair as a keyboardist for classic players? I mean, Kerry Livgren, Steve Walsh, Ronnie Platt. I mean, is it intimidating ever to kind of take up that spunk? I mean, there's some really difficult parts. I mean, Closet Chronicles, you know, Dust in the Wind is, is such an iconic hit. I mean, everybody knows what it sounds like. you got to get it right. I mean, Hopelessly Human. I mean, was it ever daunting? Well, this music, I mean, it's not like we're playing... Money, money. <laughs> you know, so, right. And and that's the thing. I I remember um, somebody I knew when I when I told them I got the gig with Kansas. And they're like, oh well, that that should be pretty easy, because all they knew was dust in the wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, huh? I said, well, actually, check this out. And I played them some of the titles that you just mentioned, and they said, I had no idea. You know, you hear the spider, for instance, and that that is I call that Emersonian. That's very Keith Emerson inspired, and it is not easy. You can't just sit down and play that like without really digging in and doing the homework and and getting it together. This is this music is is no joke. But as far as being intimidated, like you know, when I first got the Meatloaf gig, I was 24, and for, so that was sort of the dawn of my world touring career. I was playing a lot locally before then. This was like the first prime time thing. And Roy Bitten from the E Street Band played piano on a lot of those songs on Bat Out of Hell, on Bat Two. Yeah, that's right. So right from the yeah, right from the get go, I was playing keyboards, you know, keyboard and piano parts from some serious players. I mean, Roy is a great legendary rock pianist. No doubt. And then if you you know, a few years later moving to Yes, who had my idols like Rick Wakeman and Jeffrey Downs uh, Moraz. Yeah, all, all the, the Yes keyboardists were keyboardists that I really loved, Tony Kay. And so to have to fill many pairs of big shoes like that, I had to kind of get over any sort of psych outs that I would do to myself. You know, it's like, a, and I was like, all right, I just got to get down to business and do this and bring, bring it to life and do it justice. Once I was able to do that in Yes, I think that it's like that's kind of a pinnacle of keyboards in a way and rock it's it's one of the most legendary bands so i was like okay i know what i'm doing with this and i just it's like it's almost, it sounds like kind of trite but it's like there's almost no time to be intimidated it's like you know i don't have time for that i gotta go yeah, to my home you gotta concentrate right well yeah but i heard that yeah Car you gotta get it together I heard that Carrie Livgren actually watched a rehearsal one time that you were in, kind of not necessarily hanging over your shoulder, but he's, you know, he's taking note of what you're doing. I mean, that had to be a little bit intimidating, right? He was literally hanging over <laughs> my shoulder. Okay. I mean, I'd be terrified. <laughs> yeah. We played in Topeka, Kansas, where he still is, and in 2019, and as happens, which I learned, is that when we come to play, in Carrie's town, Carrie will pick up a guitar and, and sit in with the band. Oh, that's cool. And so he he played Dust in the Wind with us. We had eight-piece Kansas playing Dust in the Wind. It was it was beautiful. Wow. So he was a, a, a very sweet guy and very positive. But it's funny you mention that. You know, right after I'm here, you know, kind of waxing poetic about how I don't get intimidated, I, <laughs> I had the composer of these songs, like, looking bird's eye view right over me he gave you and the seal of approval like, though didn't he yeah because i was like well got it i mean this is the acid test if i can play it well and confidently for the composer then i know i'm, I'm, I'm on the right track 
And what was funny is, you know, we, we played, I think it might have been, been Hopelessly Human or Closet Chronicles, one of the major epics on Point of No Return. And, and Carrie, you know, soft spoke, and he just kind of nodded his head, and he said, yeah, you, you played that part right. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and that was, that was all I needed. There you go. You know, a lot of these classic acts get criticized by people because they're not in their heyday anymore. And some people say, well, it's not really Yes or it's not really Kansas, but it's really not fair because you've got some longstanding members in the band. I mean, you got Rich Williams has been in the band for a long time. Billy Greer, I think he's been in the band since the Power album in 85. You've got uh, David Ragsdale has been in the band since, I don't know what, the early 90s, right? So it, this is Kansas, and- right? And don't forget Phil Ehart, the band's original drummer. Of course. And he's also a, the kind of the captain, you know, and he's kept the ship going through thick and thin all, all these years. And so there were years where Kansas, you know, wasn't in style. They still kept going. And there were years where they came back as like, a, for lack of a better term, a legacy act mm-hmm. and started getting some heat again. But as happens with a lot of these bands, Usually, you gotta watch with the vocalist because rock vocals take a toll on on a human voice. That's why you have a lot of bands with a different singer down the road. You know, when when Steve Walsh decided to retire, the other guys said, "Hey, we want to keep going, and we still want to play Kansas. So why not? Right? If we if the band is putting on a good show and if the music is still going strong and people want to hear it." You know, and I mean, we hear that all the time. You know, especially on social media, there's always someone that's like, "This is not Kansas," or right. "This is Kansas." And, um, and all I say, and, and if anyone's wondering, I would just say, "Come to a show, and and listen for yourself, and then let's talk." Because I haven't heard anybody walk away from a Kansas show disappointed. And I've seen them and, since '91 uh, two or three times, and it certainly does still sound like Kansas. And case in point, in 2020, Kansas released a new album, "The Absence of Presence." I mean, this sounds like classic Kansas to me. I think so. You know, as a co-writer on the album, I wanted to delve into that sound, and but it wasn't like, hey, let's create like an imitation of what the 70s Kansas sounded like. See, that's a dead end. Or try to, I'm going to try to be the next Carrie Livgren. You know, that's a trap. But the fact is, I had just joined the band and had just immersed myself in this music. So it was swimming around my mind anyway. So it was natural that whatever I started writing at that time was going to be in the flavor of classic Kansas. And Zach Rizzi, who wrote a lot of the music on that album, he is a huge fan of Kansas, of of all eras of Kansas. So it's no coincidence that we are going to get some sound that pays respect to the classic era. And also, like, when I'm writing a song, I'm imagining Rich Williams playing guitar on it. It's going to, my imagination is going to lead me to that vibe, that sound. And plus, there's no pressure for this band to have a radio hit. You know, a lot of these bands, when they got into the 80s, and they, these were bands that played longer epic songs in the 70s, there was a lot of pressure from on high to get a hit song. So you got to tone it down and tighten it up. And they, they were able to do that, actually, with Fight Fire with Fire. Yeah, and play the game um, tonight, of, and they had a lot of hits. Yeah, like some bands couldn't do it at all. But Kansas was one of the bands that actually navigated the waters pretty well. But you look at now, Inside Out, it's almost like it's the opposite. They're like, hey, put some more solos in there. <laughs> Let's get, you know, put in the kitchen sink. This is because the core 
fan base of Kansas that wants to hear new music is open, and they want they want to be uh, treated to the deluxe Kansas. You know, right. so it's like we we have no commercial restraints. But to be Kansas, it's not just going to be like an indulgence. Uh, delving it, you know, just playing forever for no reason. Like Kansas has hooks and Kansas has memorable songs. So that was important that we kind of marry those two worlds because I think that's a part of what makes Kansas, Kansas. And you have your hand in at least seven out of nine of the tunes on the new album. As a songwriter, that's got to be pretty heady stuff. What's that like? Well, it was really thrilling to learn right from the get-go when they asked me to join one of the questions I asked them was, how about the writing? Am I welcome to that party? And they said, absolutely, but show us what you got. Well, show us what you got. And it was so nice to be invited to not just be a touring member of a band, but to actually take on the mantle of a member of this, this storied group. I was like, all right, now I gotta, I gotta deliver here if I wanna be on this record. What I learned is that Zach had already written several songs for the album, but he doesn't write lyrics. And I said, well, well that would be a great way to kind of get in to the whole get with the program and, and get into the group on the writing front is to to write some lyrics for some of Zach's songs. So I was able to write yeah lyrics for four of the tunes that he wrote, and then I also submitted music and lyrics for two songs, and one of them is the song "The River Sang" that I sang on the album, which was another surprise. I thought I because I just sang on the demo, thinking I was going to have Ronnie. Sing parts, and that's what we did for Memories Down the Line. Beautiful song. I sang by the way. demo. Oh, uh, well, thank you. Wonderful vocals by Ronnie as well. Yeah, so I wrote the song and I sang on the demo to give to Ronnie as a point of reference. Say, here's where, here's where the melody's at. And then he took it from there with his you know, powerful range. So when I submitted the song The River Sang to the band, they said, hey, why, why don't you sing this on the album? And I realized, oh, yeah, this is like, that's part of Kansas's thing. You know, you listen to the early albums and you got a song by that Robbie Steinhardt's going to sing lead on. You have songs on the later albums that Billy Greer sings the lead on. It's part of the Kansas thing to have a little vocal variation in there. Uh, so I, I did not expect it to be me <laughs> on this one, but here we are. And, and, and it was a lot of fun. And Billy sang the harmony on it. Uh, with me, so it was it was very very cool to 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 be involved to such an extent on the album. Well, congratulations! It's a wonderful piece of work. Thank you. Let's switch gears for a second. Talk some equipment. Uh, you're a child of the '80s, I suppose, like I am myself. I love all those old keyboard sounds from the '80s. The the emulator and the Jupiter and the Juno and the Fairchild and you know it goes on and on. But you're kind of partial to the Yamaha CP70, aren't you? I do love that instrument, and, you know, that's like kind of bridging the 70s and the 80s. You know, you have it on Video Killed the Radio Star in 79, and you have on Pierre Gabriel. In Your Eyes. In Your Eyes, 1986. Yeah, yeah so it's yeah. like, it's such a delicious piano sound, and I just happened to luck out and find one in Nashville when I was making her at the Smell the Roses, and it was such a good deal that, lo and behold, I, I it just started rearing, it started making itself wanted on the whole record. <laughs> well, they've used it before. That's kind of late 70s Kansas sound anyway, isn't it? Yes, actually, that's true, especially live. Yeah, I mean, it fits right in. It's, I mean, I love the sound of it. It's just got that kind of special, almost, this is a weird word, but sing esque so to speak. <laughs> I like that. I never heard that as an adjective before. I like it. 
you know, let's talk about producing a little bit too for a second. You've worked with some sure. great producers. You've worked with Trevor Horn a little bit, right? Well, I do want to clarify. I actually have not worked with Trevor Horn. I would love to. He's one of my favorites. You've watched um, him work, though, haven't you? Well, I watched Yes record at one of his houses. <laughs> I think. I okay. Think was, I think that's hey, I'll it. take it. For all I know, I think it was. Yeah, they were recording magnification. I think I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think they said it was one of Trevor, it belonged to Trevor Horn, but he was not involved in the session. But I did meet him back in 2018 for the Yes 50th anniversary celebration in Philadelphia, and they brought a lot of us up on the stage in the finale. Tony Kay was there, Patrick Mraz, myself, Trevor Horn, and it was just a thrill to be a part of the alumni association that day. As far as working with Kansas on the absence of presence, you had Zach Rizvi as the producer. He was, you know, because even from in the inception of the songs, he's already starting to produce. He's, he's thinking in terms of how the, the overall picture is going to sound. Even when he's making demos, his demos were exquisite. They were practically like albums. So we were very close even from the beginning. And with Phil and Richard, sort of in that sort of advisory role, they would listen to what Zach was doing and they would say, okay, let's nudge it a little bit in this direction or that direction because who knows what Kansas should sound like better than they. Mm -hmm. And so they were, they were like a, a guidance and they would like egg him on. If he was onto something really cool, they would like want him to bring out more of that or if they felt the music should flow in a certain way or arrangement type of ideas, they were there for that. And so it was, it was an interesting way to work. What I liked was that they gave me a lot of trust and they were super into letting me explore all the different kinds of synth sounds and keyboard sounds that I wanted to do. So that's, you know, that was a, a cool environment to work in. Are you always watching and observing? I mean, you know, you've got your own solo career now, so are you self-produced? Hurry up and smell the roses, for example. Did you produce that? I did, yeah. I wore too many hats on that project, actually. <laughs> but I was I was engineering, producing, writing, oh, yeah. playing most everything. That's oh, cheaper that way, right? Was, well, it depends on, you know, there's always a cost. And so, yes, it might save some money here and there, but the time and, and the focus is is where you pay yeah because you know a lot of a lot of times it, it diy is very romanticized in music like the do-it-yourself ethos but sometimes it can become dey you know do everything yourself <laughs> and um i'm not i'm not as much into that I, I feel like getting a good team is important and down the road i have worked with great producers and engineers and musicians and i, I i'll do that again this was just sort of like something I wanted to accomplish in my life where I was, I held the reins for everything and um, um, I'll treasure the experience, but it, it just made the whole process take a bit longer. Well, I must say your album is very well produced. I, I really think so. I think you did a great job with it. And that being said, let's play something else off it. What do you think? Sounds great. I'd love to play Lift Off. That's another one of my favorites. It's wonderful. Off his solo record, Hurry Up and Smell the Roses. This is Tom Brislin and this is Lift Off. Before I even walk 
I hear a lot of influences when I listen to your music. You tell me if I'm off base here. I, sometimes I hear a little Elton John in your playing. I think it's natural that most pianists who write songs are going to have to tip the hat to Elton John. I, I'm not as well versed in his catalog as some of my peers, but 
you know, how could you not like that? What about Ben Folds? It's interesting. I was compared to Ben Folds a lot in the spiraling days because we had sort of a similar tenor voice and was a piano-fronted band. And I have to admit that I purposely kind of avoided a lot of his music because I didn't want to be accused of copying anything. But later on, I, I came to appreciate a lot of his music, and I interviewed him once for Keyboard Magazine, and he was very cool and had some really great insights about music. I hear some Steely Dan also. I, I imagine they've got to have somewhat of an influence on you, right? A little bit. I think because I also like wanted to throw in some jazz into my rock, there, you, you have to uh, uh, acknowledge Steely Dan as one of the preeminent bands to do that. Yeah. Speaking of jazz, I know you're a big Bill Evans fan, as I am. I'm sure he's had somewhat of a, an influence on you with his unique voicings and stuff. Uh, other stride guys, those old guys, do, do you like them? You know, the James P. Johnsons and Willie the Lion Smith and Fats and those guys? Of course, yeah. I'm, again, I probably still need to dig into the, the early piano era. For me, I was sort of based in like the between the 40s and the 60s guys, like you know, Bud Powell, Thelonious Monk, and then leading to Red Garland, Sonny Clark, Horace Silver, and then leading to Wynn Kelly, Bill Evans, Herbie Hancock, and Shakuria, you know, and on from there. So it's like sort of like each decade had their sort of titans for me. I mean, I think one day I'll dig into the, the earliest eras. <laughs> what comes first, songwriting or piano playing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've tried to balance them both, and sometimes I'm, I'm more into one than the other. I try to keep my piano skills sharp as much as possible, but I realize that if a song idea is coming, I have to drop everything and, mm -hmm. and honor it, because you never know when that idea is going to go away. What about film work? You ever do any film work? You mean like uh, soundtracks? Yeah, or scores or incidental um, music. Scoring, yeah, I, I think that that could be in the future. It's funny, you know, the teenager was when, like, the film scoring stars started emerging like Danny Elfman and Hans Zimmer and I, at one point I thought maybe that could be a career path it seems like a, an actual job that you go to you know as opposed to rock and roll band which never seems like a real job I was definitely more of a performer but again I'm always having ideas and a lot of them are definitely film composition influence definitely well I think of a song of yours or a piece of yours like Outskirts is very cinematic. That, that's what got me thinking, this guy could do film scores. Uh, there's a real cinematic quality about your playing in general. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think it could happen in the future. Tom, it's been great talking to you. I'd love to take out the show with something I heard, probably in, inspired by COVID. This is probably more of like the Ben Folds comparisons that you got. Uh, sanitize your phone and remote control. I think this is hysterical. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a little introduction to this. <laughs> about a year ago from when we're talking tonight, I was about to get on a plane to go to the West Coast with Kansas. And as soon as I boarded the plane, I got the call that, the trip was canceled, and I, I managed to get myself off the plane while people were still boarding and turned around and went to New Jersey and just sort of set up shop here and a little little workstation, and, and we realized that the gigs were getting canceled, and here we are a year later. But I wanted to do a little proof of concept for this studio, and I wanted to see, can I make music in this place? Because well, I, I didn't mention this, but I had moved back to Nashville back in 2019. That's where I did a lot of my work for the Kansas album. So oh, the gear was still down there, most of it, but I had like a little skeleton set up here, and I said, what, can I make some music? Can I produce some content, make a video, you know, all that stuff? Can I do it? 
And so I, I came up with this, I don't know, one minute and 30 second punky rock song, even before we knew the full extent of what COVID was going to be, um, it was sort of a public service announcement and, and something that families who were cooped up together at home could sort of shout together. <laughs> And it does your phone in remote control. So that, that's where that song came from. It's really funny. Can we play that before we have to get out of here? By all means. All right. You're washing your hands. You're not touching your face. You're coughing into your sleeve. But there's one more thing. Sanitize your phone and remote control. Sanitize your phone and remote control. you got to sanitize your phone and remote control. Go do it now. Sanitize your phone and remote control. You got to sanitize your phone and remote control. You got to sanitize your phone and remote control because it's gross. You take rubbing alcohol and a cotton ball and you sanitize your phone and you clean it all. You got to sanitize your phone and remote control because it's gross. Sanitize your phone and clean its case. Don't you know how many times you hold it up to your face? You got to sanitize your phone and remote control. Go do it now. Stuck at home and you're all alone. You take a pump and alcohol and you clean your phone. You got to sanitize your phone and remote control. Go do it now. Your computer keys, tablet screen, and in the other place where your hands have been. You got to sanitize your phone and remote control. Go do it now. Sanitize your phone and remote control. Sanitize your phone and remote control. You got to sanitize your phone and remote control because they're gross. Tom, it's been a true pleasure talking to you. Thanks for doing it, man. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me on. I hope to talk to you again soon. Same here. You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. Produced, engineered, and edited every week by Josie Grant. Click subscribe, people. It's not that hard. Just reach out. Just reach out and hit that button. We need more followers. And here's another idea. Come back next week, and we'll have another great artist. We hope to see you then.